So I went to the movies uh, this week, and um, I should probably uh, preface this by saying that as a general rule, I am not in support of the heroic worship of Norse thunder gods. That being said, my wife really wanted to go, so we went to the movies, <laughs> and we saw, <laughs> we saw this new Thor movie, and uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure that all of you will be at prayer meetings this week instead of going to the movies, so I'm not spoiling anything for you, but uh, just a little small spoiler, there's a scene in the movie in which Thor, the god of thunder, has to fight the Incredible Hulk when he's mad, and um, And Thor is a stud, and he's got this cool, long-flowing hair that all the girls like, and (laughs) some kind of six-pack or something, I don't know, (laughs) and this hammer. But by this point, he doesn't have his hammer anymore. So he's got to fight the Incredible Hulk without a hammer, and somebody cut off his hair. I I know, it's just tragic. It's tragic, really. (laughs) And... um, and he has to go in and fight the Hulk. And, and when they enter the arena together like gladiators, Thor comes out and he just is ripped with muscle and he looks so impressive until they pan out and you see that Hulk is five times as big. And, and they're going to go against each other, these two guys. And, and Thor looks like a little kid compared to Hulk. And, and you realize this guy has got absolutely no chance. Um, he, he doesn't have his long hair. He doesn't have his hammer. But he is still really strong and really big and really brave and really courageous and really tough. And he has all these powers. And you think, well, I don't know, maybe he's got a chance. And then Hulk goes after him and you think, yeah, he's got no chance. And, and I saw it and it made me think of uh, another story like it uh, that you can find in your Bible about a kid named David who had to fight a guy named Goliath. And, and, and let me just clarify, of these two stories, one is false and one is true, okay? Now we're on to the true one, okay? And, and in this famous story that most of you have heard about David and Goliath, Goliath is this huge monster of a man. And he is a trained warrior. And, uh, and he's literally, according to the measurements we're given in Scripture, about nine foot six inches tall. So just picture Shaquille O'Neal if he was two and a half feet taller and that much bigger, okay? That's how big he is. And he's going to fight this little kid, David. And on top of that, Goliath comes out and he's covered in armor. He has a beam in one hand, like a javelin, and a sword in the other. And he has an armor bearer, this guy who just comes out to carry a a shield and keep it in front of him so nothing can hit him. David, on the other hand, has a sling, right? And this is what makes the story so great, is that David goes out there with just a sling, and he's standing there as Goliath is taunting him and taunting God and mocking God, and he's just swinging this sling and swinging it and swinging it until finally he lets that thing go, and it flies and hits him right between the eyes, and he drops, and in one of the great PG-13 moments in the Old Testament, he goes and gets his sword and chops off Goliath's head and picks it up and walks away with it. It's a pretty cool story. 
story, right? It's a pretty impressive, that was one that kept me in Sunday school. I'm like, let's do that one again. There's blood and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so here's the thing. David is this little kid. And Goliath is this huge guy. And how in the world is he going to compete with him? And of course, we understand that the point of the whole story is that God is bigger than even the biggest giant, right? right? And, and so let's not forget that. But, but what's interesting about this, actually, um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book recently about this called David and Goliath. And in it, he argues that even if there were no God, and he's not saying there was no God, but he's saying even if there was no God, even if there was no supernatural intervention, he thinks David would have won that fight anyway. And he explains why. And he basically says that, you, you know how Goliath, he, he's calling out today. He says, come to me and I will, what is it? I'll make your bones food for the neighborhood cats or something. I, something like that. Come to me, come to me. And David never comes to him, does he? What does he do? He keeps his distance. He stays as far away as possible and he keeps swinging this sling, right? Because he's no idiot. And he realizes that if I get close enough for that guy to get me, he's going to break me in half. But if I could keep my distance and use my speed and agility and skill, remember how he told Saul, he said, hey, um, you know, I already killed a bear and I already killed a lion. So I'm not afraid of this guy. We picture that as him going up to this lion and fighting and wrestling the lion. I'm convinced that's probably not what happened. I think what happened was here comes a lion toward his and he grabs this sling and bang. Those guys could sling a stone almost as fast as a handgun fires a bullet. Those projectiles were unbelievable and they would kill people and they would kill animals. And so David apparently uses his skill set. Now again, a reminder, the point of the whole story is God supernaturally intervened. I'm not implying in any way that that's not what happened. I am saying that God apparently used David's wisdom and knowledge of battle so that he strategically fought Goliath and ends up winning the fight. He was perfectly suited for that kind of fight. Sometimes when I read these Sunday school stories about these heroes of the faith, um, I have to admit, I have trouble relating. I look at these guys and I realize they're not like big muscle bound, you know, ninjas or anything like that, but, but they have tremendous faith and they have tremendous courage. Guys like Elijah and Daniel and David and these guys, they have all of this faith and courage and I look in the mirror and I don't see a lot of faith and then my courage is basically non-existent sometimes. And I, I really have trouble relating to these guys. And I may not have to fight giants or lions or pharaohs, but I have my share of challenges. And I go up against some things from time to time that I don't think I have the power to overcome. And sometimes I feel helpless. You ever feel like that? Let me introduce you to a guy who knew what it was to feel that way. We're going to find his story in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Go to John, chapter 5, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book of your New Testament. Go to John, chapter 5. 
And we're going to just pick up the story right at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. And I want you to meet this guy and see his story. Chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first after the stirring up of the water stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. I just want you to wrap your mind around this guy's situation. First of all, how long had he been sick? 38 years. This guy is an invalid. He, he, he's incapable of doing basic day's work to take care of himself. Every day he's down there at the pool of Bethesda waiting for the waters to be stirred because for 38 years he's been in that condition. Now, 38 years is a long time. Some of you are not 38 years old yet. Some of you have already been old for 38 years, right? <laughs> Most of us are somewhere in between. But no matter what your age, 38 years is a long time when you're suffering. I guarantee you there's been a lot of prayer meetings. I guarantee you there's been a lot of doctor visits. I guarantee you there's been a lot of try this medication. I guarantee you there's been a lot of suffering. 38 years, completely unable to take care of himself. Now, on top of that, here's what else we know about this guy. He has very little faith. In fact, apparently doesn't even know who Jesus is. Because Jesus, the one who can heal him, walks up to him and says, do you want to get well? And his response is to make excuses and point out the reasons and tell the story about why he's been there all this time, rather than just taking Jesus at his word. So it's not his faith that somehow got him healed. He obviously has no power. He doesn't even have enough power to put himself in the pool. And he doesn't have anybody to help him. Now, if you, if you look in your, in your Bible here in John chapter 5, uh, and it might depend upon your translation, but, but if you look in verse 3, and halfway through verse 3, it, well, verse 3, and these uh, lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And then in my Bible, there's a, a bracket that begins right there. You, you may have parentheses or italics or something, or maybe a footnote. And starting right there where it says waiting for the moving of the waters, all the way through verse 4 where the bracket closes, all of that is in brackets in your Bible because it doesn't exist in the earliest manuscripts. You could just skip that part. When you get back to the earliest, uh, 
copies of the book of John that we have, those words are not in there. Now, here's what we don't know. We know that somebody obviously added them at some point. We don't know whether they're true. We don't know whether it's actually true that an angel would come down and stir the waters and people would go into the pool and somebody would get healed. But we do know this, it was a legend at least. They believed it. <laughs> That's why they were there. They were hoping, right? Now, I don't know. I don't know whether it was true or not. My guess is it was just a legend. And yet, when you're helpless, it doesn't really matter, does it? You will hold on to anything when you're helpless. And this guy was helpless. And so what did he do? He just accepted his circumstances. And every day they would drop him off and people would come by to go in the gate and they would walk past all of these people who were sick and in need and, and then people would give them alms. And this was what he did every day. He sat down there with his little tin cup hoping to, people would throw a couple of coins in. This was his life for 38 years. And he had just accepted his circumstances. But here's the thing. Jesus hadn't accepted his circumstances. God had a plan for the rest of this guy's life that he knew nothing about. And when Jesus interrupts your life and gets involved, you are no longer helpless. It changes everything. One of the most challenging things for me during the time that I was recovering from my surgery was the early days when it seemed like I couldn't do anything on my own. I couldn't, I couldn't feed myself. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't take care of any of my own needs. Anything that had to happen had to be done for me by somebody. And I thank God for those doctors and nurses that were gifted to do that and willing to do that and the impact they had in my life. But even when I got home from the hospital... I was dependent upon others for everything the first week or two. And, and honestly, thank God for Christy and Garrett who were home most of the time and others who loved me, who came and went and were able to serve me and help me and, and just take care of me because I wasn't able to take care of myself. And the love of those people was life-changing for me. And still it wasn't fun. Because helpless is a terrible way to feel. None of us likes to feel needy. But we are. Now, we're going to... I'm going to come to the point of my sermon, okay? If you're taking notes, this is going to be the line you're going to write down. Um, and I'm going to let you guys guess what it is. You're just going to fill in the blank. You ready? All you need is... Not bacon, not bacon. <laughs> you didn't even sing it on key, David. All you need is love, right? Right? No, not right. All you need is God. And God is love. But love is not God. There's a difference. All you need is God. Did you really think I was going to preach a sermon on Beatles lyrics? 
these are the same people that said, imagine there's no heaven. These are the same people who told us we all live on a yellow submarine. We're not preaching their stuff. (laughs) But here's what I will say. All you need is God. And our friend in John 5 thought he needed all sorts of things. He thought he needed an angel to stir the waters. He thought he needed a friend to help him get into the water and beat everybody else down the steps. He thought he needed the power to get himself into the water. He had all kinds of reasons why he was still living in the broken state he was living in helplessly. But Jesus didn't ask him about any of that kind of stuff. Because it turned out all he needed was Jesus. All he needed was God. Now listen, I wrote this sermon this week and I went over it and over it and I said, it's so simple. This is such a simplistic sermon that I kind of owe everybody an apology. I look out upon you, you're such a bright group of people with a couple exceptions. (laughs) Most of you, very bright group of people and this feels like a second grade Sunday school lesson to me. And then I realized, you know what? Sometimes the most basic, simple things never get all the way into our heart, and that's why our lives are not transformed. So I'm going to just ask you to bear with me, and I'm going to preach a simple message, but it is not simplistic. And I'm not going to be overly simplistic. I'm not saying that if you have enough faith, God will give you whatever you want. Let's remember, we're not even talking about what you want. We're talking about what you need. And there's a difference. And, and, but I, well, I'm talking about that, that strong, like compelling need. So let me, let me try to illustrate it for you. Just, this is kind of a nightmarish scene, but just imagine you're being held underwater and you've been down there a long time and you cannot, you're fighting and scratching and everything and you cannot get up and your lungs are beginning to burn and you're beginning to feel this panic and your, your mind is starting to shut off and you are desperate and, the, and it doesn't matter about anything else that was going on in your life before you got in that water because since you've been under the water, you've only been aware that you need one thing. What do you need? Air, right? You just need Air. And, and picture this, somehow your car broke down in the middle of the desert, you took off from the thing and you've been crawling through the desert in the heat of the summer and, and you could feel just the moisture being sucked out of your body and your cells are just starting to shut down and you know that you are dying of thirst as you crawl through the sand and all you can think of is the one thing that you've got to have and if you don't get it, you're going to die and that is water. Let's say that you've been diagnosed with a faulty heart valve and it has to be replaced or your heart is going to stop pumping and you're going to die. What do you need? Surgery, right? No! All you need is God. Now you say now you're being way too simplistic. Totally over-spiritualizing this thing. Listen, if I am underwater and I can't get any oxygen, what I need is air. Not true. If you drown under the water and you have God, you're fine. If, if you are dying of thirst and you never make it to water that will nourish you, but you have God and you breathe your last breath in the desert and die in the sand, but you have God, 
you're better off than you were the day before. And if you go into that surgical room and they look at you and say, oh, nothing we can do, closing back up, and you breathe your last, you're in better shape than you were the day before because you have God. But if you have everything this world has to offer and you live in a palace and you have servants waiting on you hand and foot and whatever you ask for is brought to you immediately and you don't have God, you have absolutely nothing. All you really need really is God. Now, and when I say all you need is God, I, what I'm trying to say is that if, if you're in the right relationship with God, He's got you covered. You, you need to have your life submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's your Lord and Savior and you're following Him. And if that's the case, if the Lordship of Christ is real in your life, along with the Lordship of Christ comes salvation, eternal life. That's a very good thing. And if that was all there was, it would be enough and all we could say is thank you, right? But on top of that, he says, I'm going to take care of you on this earth. Long before you ever step over into heaven, you're going to have everything that you need. In fact, I'm going to give you the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. All of that is going to be yours if you'll just submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And on top of that, he says, I'm going to give you, because you are a child of God and a joint heir with Jesus, you already have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Huh. Now, some of you are thinking, here we go. He's spiritualizing this. He says all we need is God, but the truth of the matter is, if I don't pay the rent by Wednesday, I'm out of my butt. And that's a practical need. And don't give me these, these philosophical, spiritual-sounding platitudes about how great it is to have God, because what I need is a check in the mail. I need a way to pay the rent, and if I don't get it, I'm toast. Some of you are thinking right now, listen, you could have everything. I will give you everything I have just for physical healing. I, I just need to be healed. And, and you could talk about how I need God all you want, but if I don't get healed, I got nothing. I need healing. Some of you have just been wandering, and you're lost, and you're confused, and you're trying to figure out what comes next in your life, and you're thinking, I need direction. I need something practical to help to guide me. Some of you are so lonely in your lives right now that you're saying, what I really need is just one true friend. Just one person who cares about me so much that they will cling to me and let me cling to them and support me and encourage me. Some of you are going, yeah, well, I'm homeless. I need a place to live. And the, and the list just goes on and on and on. Practical realities. I need this. Don't stand up there, preacher man, and tell me that all I need is some spiritual thing. What I really need is some practical stuff. I hear you. So let me explain what I mean when I say, all you need is God. Number one, God takes care of your deepest spiritual needs. Most of you are already familiar. I quote these verses all the time. 
John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? He saw your deepest need. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He sent his Son to pay the price and die on the cross so you could have eternal life. We know what it says in Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It comes by grace, right? We understand that we're dead in our sin, but he takes care of our spiritual need if we'll just accept this free gift. Here's what I want you to understand. And I've said it before in this series. You were not created for time. You were created for eternity. And I'm going to keep saying it because we have to get this straight in our heads or we're not going to get anything straight in our heads. We can't prioritize anything if we don't understand that eternity is real. And that once you were conceived in your mother's womb from that point on, you're everlasting. And where you spend eternity is the most important issue. And your spiritual life is the most important reality in your life. You were created for eternity. And no matter what you do with the few fleeting moments that you have left on this earth, you still have the problem of eternity apart from Jesus. God takes care of that problem. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus alone is the life. Our eternity is completely dependent upon His grace. And if you don't get eternal life from Him, you don't get it. This is so crucial. We have to understand what Jesus said. We don't get to just pretend that Jesus is a good teacher, but he's not the only way to heaven. Because if Jesus is not the only way to heaven, he is not a good teacher. Because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we have to understand in our politically correct culture and how we dance around topics that might offend somebody and we don't talk politics and we don't talk religion, we have to understand that we don't need to get into politics and religion, but we do have to talk about our hearts. And we have to talk about our need for God. And eternity is forever. And Jesus takes care of that. And even if God met no other needs in our lives, that would be enough. But he does something else. Number two, he takes care of our practical needs. And this is the cool part for those who are frustrated with the over-spiritualizing. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 6. So first book in the New Testament. This is the Sermon on the Mount. I always love visiting the Sermon on the Mount, letting Jesus speak to us. And then on uh, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is the preacher. And he's preaching this sermon. And we're going to pick it up in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. If not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? 
Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Guys, I'm not saying that we have no need for things like food and water and shelter and clothing. What I'm saying is the same God who promises us eternal life by putting our faith in Jesus Christ promises to take care of those things too. So if we have faith for believing him for salvation, we need to believe him to be our supplier. We need to believe that he's going to be the one who takes care of us. Do you need water? It comes from him. Do you need air? It comes from him. You need clothing. You need shelter. You need healing. You need relationships. It all comes from him. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19. And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. He'll supply all of our needs. It's just, our Heavenly Father knows what we need. He takes care of birds. He's not going to take care of us. He clothes flowers. He's not going to clothe us. Guys, when I was flat on my back in a hospital room, <laughs> I wasn't producing anything. I wasn't accomplishing anything. I wasn't making anything, selling anything, fixing anything, helping anybody. I wasn't doing anything but take up space. I was laying flat on my back for those first few days. And you know what? Somehow God took care of all my needs. Amen. Somehow he, took, he, he fed my family. Somehow, somehow he, he gave me everything that I needed to get through that day and on to the next one. Somehow. Without me chipping in at all. Imagine that. God doesn't need you. <laughs> oh, that hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> God doesn't need you. God met my every need. I'm not saying it was easy. I'm not saying that everything that went the way I wanted it to go. I am saying this, God met my every need. He always has and he always will. He takes care of our practical needs if we let him. Third thing, God takes care of your relationship needs. Every one of us knows this from experience, but I'm going to just say it anyway. We weren't made to go through this life alone. And, and that's a biblical statement. If you go back to Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, and you read the creation account, you see that on day one, God made a bunch of stuff, and he said that was good. And then he went on to day two, and he made a bunch more stuff, and he said that was good. And on day three, he made a bunch more stuff, and he said that was good. And he did that for six days until his crowning uh, creation was man who was made in his own image and given the entire creation to subdue and care for. And it was all good. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 18, which is the first place in all of human history where we see something that is not good. And God himself says, it is not good for man to be alone. And, and I know that's a great verse that goes for weddings and marriages and stuff, but it's not primarily a marriage verse. It's a community verse. What it means is that God created us to need one another. 
that somehow part and parcel of being human is to need other humans. We've got to have each other. But, but it wasn't good when man was alone. And so God changed it by creating community. He never intended for us to go through this life alone. We were created for community. And some of us are struggling and stumbling because we're trying to do it on our own. And, and we need to remember, God puts us in families. He puts us in neighborhoods and communities and local churches. He puts us in relationships with other people because those people need us and we need them. And one of the big mistakes that people make is they don't put effort into building relationships that are healthy and strong until they desperately need relationships that are healthy and strong. One of the things that I've been doing in my life for about the last 24, 25 years is that I've always had a peer group, a group of other pastors who are friends that I meet with on a regular basis and we have a covenant relationship together, which means we share everything, we correct one another, we confront one another, we pray for one another, we teach one another, we encourage one another, we don't hide from one another, we do life together, we love one another. And I'll tell you what, the reason I started doing that is because in the course of just a few months, I watched four men of God, pastors who God was using in powerful ways, I watched them crumble in their ministries and be disqualified from the ministry because of mistakes that they made, because they gave in to temptation. And, and these were friends of mine. These are men of God. These are, it broke my heart. And I thought, gosh, why didn't he come to me? Why didn't he come to me when he was first feeling tempted? Why didn't he come to me when his marriage was really starting to struggle? Why didn't he come to me? And I realized he didn't come to me because I hadn't built the friendship with him to the point where he would come to me. And he hadn't bothered to build any of those friendships for himself. And I said, that is never, ever going to be the case in my life. And from that point on, I've been meeting with a group of pastors and continuously doing that for about the last quarter of a century. And as long as I am alive, I'm going to continue to do that. Because here's what I learned. If you wait until you need the relationship to build the relationship, it won't be there when you need it. Does that make sense? We were created for community. Some of us just need to take a deep breath, especially if we're more shy or introverted or something, and we need to reach out to some people and deepen our relationships, especially within the body of Christ. You could go to Romans chapter 12. We won't take the time to read it, but you can mark it down in your notes. Romans 12, verses 4 through 18. It, it gives us this whole story where it says, you know what? We're one body, but many members. And every one of us brings something different to the table. And we need to do this together. Now, you're thinking, hey, wait a second. Didn't you just say all we need is God, but now you're telling us that we need people? Listen, this is how God ministers to us, primarily through people. People are tools in the hands of God that he uses to transform our lives. And I understood this on principle but I understand it a whole lot better now that I've been flat on my back. And I couldn't do basic things like stand up or shower or, you know, feed myself. And I didn't like it a bit, but there's nothing I could do about it except depend upon God to use other people to bless me. And I, I knew that I had this church full of people who loved me enough that they were praying for me. You know, those first couple of days, I was so out of it, I wasn't even praying for you. 
I was praying for Marge because she's married to Dave. Everybody else, <laughs> even, even have, I have no energy to pray for you, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know, um, there were people that were undergirding me just in prayer. I was getting texts and emails from all around the world. There's people tens of thousands of miles away said, hey, we gathered today and we had a prayer meeting for you. Amazing how desperately we need one another. Guys, listen, this is why we have grace groups. This is why we have youth groups. This is why we have young adult groups. This is why we, we try to gather together as couples and spend time together and build into each other's lives. This is why we have a men's ministry and a women's ministry and all these things set up. They're just designed to create context for relationships because we can't do the Christian life on our own. I even was worried about, about the church. I thought, you know, if I'm out for two months, probably the church will go under without me. How will it make it? Like, I do so much stuff around here. I, I fill my week with stuff to do. What are you guys? You guys are all going to just, just keel over without me. I figured I'd get back, the doors would be closed, there'd be cobwebs on the building and stuff like that. I was just so amazed to see how God raises up people and all these things that I used to do are now Dave's responsibility and I don't have to worry about him anymore. And, and, and so many of you stepped up and are now in roles of service and leadership that you were not in when I was here just doing all that kind of stuff. And I have news for you. I'm not letting you out. It's going to continue because that's the strength of a church. When, when we lock arms and do this together, God puts us into community because we desperately need one another. We're simply not designed to do it alone. So what did I say earlier? All you need is... Okay, you got it right. Congratulations. He provides your spiritual needs. He provides your practical needs. He provides your relational needs. And when Jesus saw the man by the side of the, of the uh, pool of Bethesda, Jesus was straight to the point. He asked him a question. He said, do you want to get well? Do you wish to get well? He didn't ask for excuses. He didn't ask for explanations. He didn't want to know where the blame should get laid. He just asked him this, do you wish to get well? And so I close with his question. If you're struggling and feeling helpless and wondering, where's my direction going to come from? Where's my practical needs going to get met? How, what's going to happen with me spiritually? And you're wandering and, you, and, and you're helpless. I pose to you the question of Jesus. Do you wish to get well? All you need is God. Say yes to Jesus. Let's stand together and pray.